Mighty God and Everlasting One, we come before you who alone is able to forgive our sins, knowing full well that the Son of Man has power to do so. Yet, O God, as we have just read your commandments, and as we come now to the summary of those commandments in Genesis 2, we ask that you would enable us to understand what the law is, what you have so given Adam to obey, and what that obedience entails. We pray, O Lord, that as we look at that which is applicable to us, as we look at what covenant is and the covenant of works and how that is played out in our life, we ask, O God, that you would aid us to be prepared in hearing of the word and preaching it, that you might be glorified as this text is read and expounded in Genesis chapter 2. We ask that your spirit would enable us, that you would bless us by your unction in this place this morning. We ask that you would convict us and that you would aid us in the keeping of your word as we ought. We so pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 15 to 17. We've gone through this particular chapter as a whole unit, but now we look at it in part in touching upon the covenant that God made with Adam and how that affects what God has done with the one that he made and placed in the garden. Let's read together Genesis chapter 2, 15 to 17. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. It is interesting to note in the passage that God took the man and placed in the garden the man. The vocabulary strikingly points to the spiritual nature of man's responsibility here. God has placed now Adam in the garden. And the word placed is actually, as we talked about last week, from the word rest, which the first day that Adam enjoyed was the Sabbath day, which God took him and placed him in the passage. The idea of rest, especially in light of the Sabbath idea, that he was to go into the garden and rest before God by doing something, by actually being active in serving and keeping the garden. That doesn't seem like resting. Well, it's a spiritual resting. Adam is priest of the garden, of God's sanctuary. And serving and keeping are two verbs used throughout the rest of the Pentateuch that Moses is writing here for spiritual service. This is what Adam is supposed to be doing. Keeping is used for keeping the commandments and taking heed to obey God's word. Serving describes the worship and service of the Lord, the highest privilege that a person can have. 
Whatever Adam was to do in the garden, it was described in terms of a spiritual service. This is the ideas behind these words. He was the priest. And the covenant in of itself was not an option for him. God took him and placed him there and gave him certain stipulations. The command, uh, in verse 60, where it says, And the Lord commanded him, it's the major word for commandments. The word that's used throughout all of the Bible in terms of the law. And so here is the first commandment given in the Bible, and it concerns life and death. The commandment in and of itself is a demonstration of life and death. As with all of God's subsequent commands, there are positive blessings and negative prohibitions that are attached to it, all of them surrounding a covenant structure. In this passage, God has placed at man's disposal everything that he needs to uphold being a priest in God's sanctuary garden, to tend it and keep it. He's there even with the the background of the Hebrew words. He's there to enjoy it to his heart's content. Except the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. In that, God says, that in the day that you eat of it dying, you will die. That everything that goes underneath and in the idea of death, as we'll see, falls under, you shall surely die. It is termed, or most commonly termed, the covenant of works that Adam was placed in. Three elements describe the covenant. First, there's a promise of eternal life. Second, There's a prescription of the conditions for obtaining the promise. And third, there is a legal or penal sanction against the transgressors of the covenant. In the keeping of the command, there is a positive blessing. In the transgression of the command, there is a negative curse. But all of this surrounds the conditions of the covenant itself, which is to bring life. God requires the complete sanctification of the parties that are involved. Adam is to keep it perfectly. And if he doesn't keep it perfectly, God threatens punishment. Let's first talk about the penal sanction, the law, the legality of it as it stems from verse 17. Death is the consequence of sin, of transgressing the commandment. Death is not natural. Death is not something that was set in the garden, in creation, part of creation in any way, shape, or form. It is a reaction both for Adam and, as we find when we read Genesis 3, even the ground that God curses. Creation itself becomes cursed as a result of a transgression against God's commandment. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The rebellion and disobedience that are given towards the commandment will cause curse to come. And punishment will follow. Death, as God says, will follow as a consequence eating the fruit. The sacrament of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a sign. It is a sign 
of the promise of the covenant. And there's a sealing of the covenant in that sign as it is not eaten. And it signifies the curse of the covenant. If man is found disobedient, he's going to be doomed. If he eats of the tree, he's going to find the greatest calamity ever possible to fall upon him and all those that he represents, as we'll talk about. Whenever somebody partakes of a sacrament, whenever they eat of it, they're partaking of either blessing or curse. They are partaking of either life and death. So, in coming under this oath and curse, he makes himself liable to the punishment if he deals with it in a way that doesn't uphold it. Sin is expressed in the transgression of this commandment. And literally, we're going to call it the transgression of the symbolic law, as it's so deemed in theology. The tree symbolizes the law. It symbolizes the holy character of God. The law seen in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a fuller expression. It's an explanation. It's like a commentary on the law. It's a visual aid that consistently stands in front of Adam to remind him of God's command. Punishment for the sin is in accordance with God's authority and justice. If Adam transgresses the sin, God will have to punish. And that's why punishment is joined to the words. You shall surely die if he eats of the tree. And the term death, that you'll die as a result, includes everything that revolves around the idea of death, which is why the Hebrew behind it repeats itself in dying that you shall die. It's to be taken in all of its meaning, not just physically dying, because Adam, when he ate of the tree, did not instantaneously physically die in the transgression. He found that he was naked. He found that he was ashamed. He ran and hid. There's all sorts of things that happened as a result. Death surrounds everything in this penal sanction that is a just declaration of what God will pronounce on the one who transgresses the covenant. When, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, but when God speaks to Adam, he speaks in this way as if he is speaking to all of mankind. Because this physical and spiritual death that's going to come is going to come on behalf of all men as the outcome of disobedience or if Adam would uphold it, it will be the outcome of obedience for all of mankind in upholding it. But it's immediate. There's no grace period. If he transgresses, he will immediately be punished. The moment he finished his sin, as we know in Genesis 3, he felt the change immediately. Death in and of itself throughout Scripture demonstrates the incredible horribleness of this particular covenant. I mean, think about it. One sin, one transgression, everything is thrown into misery. What is that misery? What is death in Scripture? What is God promising as a result of transgression? Well, first, death is the separation of the body and the soul. Soul becomes unfit for the body. Genesis 3.19 says, For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And the soul 
can't stay in anything contaminated, which is wicked and sinful and dying. The physical body dies. The soul leaves it. When the Bible speaks about the body as dust, it always speaks about it in a way that's negative. Abraham in Genesis 18 says, I'm dust. It's a negative connotation of the weakness. David, in Psalm 103, verse 14, he says, God knows that our frames are made of dust. It's a negative connotation of weakness. The serpent is said to have dust as its food and crawling and slithering on its belly. In Isaiah 65, verse 25, dust is the sinful flesh. Dust in and of itself is what we're made up of. We are frames made of dust. And death surrounds it as a result of the transgression. Death means vanity. It means frustration in this life, along with pain, along with misery. Everything that's opposite to happiness. Right off the bat, the moment that the transgression occurred in the garden, God told the woman, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Then he said to Adam, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and had eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field and the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and dust you shall return. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11.23, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool, I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in, quote, deaths often. Death is every aspect of frustration and pain and misery in this life. Death also means spiritual death. Paul says in Ephesians 4.18 that those who are spiritually dead have their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God. Ephesians 2.1 says that we were dead in trespasses and sins. Being dead, death means spiritual death. Death also means the eternal death of the body and the soul. 1 Timothy 5.6 But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. It's as if people are walking around in their death as living carcasses or zombies in that way. Corrupt in all of their faculties of their soul, void of all spiritual wisdom, such a death denotes the wicked. And it renders man vile and unable without any capacity for any spiritual good. And the terrors of an evil conscience in this death are set in the minds of all those who remain under the power of it eternally. Revelation 14.11 And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. In hell, these people, these dead people who are walking around, who are unregenerate, and who remain in that death, will rejoin their body in hell. 
even when they die. And they will be set under the everlasting destruction of the wrath of God for their wickedness. This death is what we call eternal punishment. Matthew 25:46, And these will go away into everlasting punishment. Mark 9:44, Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. In their minds, in their actions, in their desires, everything about them are set under the guise of deadness and death. Death surrounds them. And all of their actions of every person will be tried before the judgment. And all of those that are not under the blood of Christ will be doomed. Romans 2.16 says, In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Men will be judged according to the second Adam who came. And if they are found lingering under the curse of the first Adam, they will receive and experience everything that the word death brings to it. So death is all the misery of this life. It's the physical dying of the body. It's eternal torment. It's everything that comes from transgressing the commandment of God. It's everything that reflects not being like God. Remember, as we had even read, God is a God of the living, those who are, not those who are dead. The second thing I want you to think of, we've talked about death as a result of this penal sanction, but I also want to talk about the necessity of it. Why it's necessary that God had to do that. Why did God have to say, the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There are three reasons. The majesty of God, the holiness of God, and the justice of God. Those three things demonstrate why God must say, if you do not act like me, if you do not mimic me, if you do not reflect me, then the consequence is everything bound up in the idea of death. The majesty of God. God's jealous. God is jealous for his own glory and for his own majesty. And for Adam to transgress the covenant that God placed him in, which is the best place that Adam could be. God didn't place him in a bad place. He placed him in a good place. He placed him in paradise. But God is a jealous God that Adam must not worship any other God but him. He cannot have a love that is greater than the love that he has for God for himself, which is the greatest of man's sin, self-love. Exodus 34.14 says, For you shall worship no other God for the Lord, whose name is Jealous. He is a jealous God. And God cannot deny himself. He cannot deny that he is the supreme majesty that Adam should look to. 2 Timothy 2.13 If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. God must be who he is. It's the manifestation of the jealousy of God that's seen here against sin in the commandment. If you transgress, if you aren't like me, I have to punish wickedness because I am majestic and you must be a reflection of that. That turns us to consider, secondly, the holiness of God. 
A holy God cannot be joined with a sinner without satisfaction made to his justice. As Adam upholds the covenant, God will walk with him in the cool of the day because he demonstrates or reflects God's worth, his worthiness. But the moment that he transgresses the covenant and breaks it, then holiness is tarnished in Adam and sin is found in him. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.14, For those of us who have been changed do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? Lawlessness without the law. What communion has light with darkness? In verse 17, whoever touches sin cannot commune with that, is, with that which is holy. That's why he says, the day that you eat of it, you should surely die. Whitsiot says, it is not suitable to the holiness of God to cultivate a friendship with a sinner so long as he continues as such. That's the covenant breaker. That's the one that God rejects. The one that is the sinner, God cannot come and cultivate a friendship with. He has to change them. The whole silliness of the idea, just as I am without one plea, that's wrong. God will not come and fellowship with one just as they are. As a matter of fact, he sends his son to die so that he can change that one and cover that one so that he can be other than he is. A holy God, as Habakkuk tells us, cannot continually look upon sin. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. The Hebrew idea behind that is to continually look at it, to continually cultivate a relationship with it that's positive. Can't do it. God hates sin so much that he not only hates sin, but he hates the sinner. Deuteronomy 25.16 For all who do such things, all who behave unrighteously, are an abomination to the Lord your God. They are. Not their works. Their works are. That's a given. God hates the transgression. This is what he's telling Adam. When you eat of it, you'll die. I, don't, I, I hate sin. Yet, for you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. We understand that, as Psalm 5 says. But, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And, and these kind will not go unpunished. God is in direct opposition to such. A holy God cannot be like the sinner who doesn't necessarily punish sin or doesn't care about punishing sin to a certain extent. extent. Think about the holy and righteous judge that sends a criminal off to jail. He's an evil man. Everybody knows he's guilty, and so he sends them off. But how much of a wicked and unrighteous man is that judge? Think about him being an unregenerate man. Him being one that uses the Lord's name often. In God's set of commandments, that's one of the biggies. But he doesn't care. He'll punish in a different way than God does. God cannot be like that, though. God must on every note and on every sin and in every way that does not reflect who he is, he must punish sin. 
If God doesn't, he becomes like the sinner. He would deny himself. God manifests his holiness whenever he does punish the wicked. One of the most amazing demonstrations of that besides this passage in Genesis 2 is in Leviticus 10.3 when Nadab and Abihu were destroyed as a result of offering something that God had not told them not to do. There, he told them what they should do and they added something. But they added something that God didn't tell them to add. And so he killed them both. And these men were of no mean reputation. They were the big guys. They were Aaron's sons who were ministering before the people in God's house and God killed them both. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. Before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. What could Aaron say about his sons dying? Was he sad? Yes. But he was more aware that God is holy. So he held his peace. It's necessary for God to punish the breaker of the covenant because he's holy. Thirdly, he's also just. Justice is an essential aspect of God's nature. Justice demands that sin be punished, not just with a slap, but with death and everything that surrounds it. Romans 1.32 who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. It must be done. Justice must be given in order for God to stay consistent with his own character. The penal sanction of death itself is based, it has its root in the just nature of God. Eternal death is not just some arbitrary thing that God slapped on it. It depends on God's holy nature. For God is greater than man. Why do you contend with him? For he does not give an accounting of any of his words. Job 33 says that. It's an act, a just act based on God's character that he must do those things. Because sin, whenever someone sins against God, sin is an infinite transgression against him. Not because we are infinite or we are doing a sin that is in us infinite, but because that sin is an infinite transgression against God because of who he is. When we transgress, when we sin, that is an infinite sacrifice in relationship to the infinite character of God without measure. And to attack God in that way, who is infinite, Punishment must be infinite as well. That's why people always have a hard time with hell. Why would God send somebody to hell for 80 years worth of sin? Why? Why would he send them there for an infinite duration for 80 years worth of sin if he lives that long? Or 25 years if he lives that long? Well, because they're missing the idea that one, every sin Every aspect of the sin of Adam given to them is an infinite transgression. And every sin that they sin is compounding that infinite transgression and making it worse. And it stands there forever unless it's washed away by Christ's blood. 
God is not to be served, right? What Adam was doing in the garden, in vain. He was to obey his commandments. And if he does, we've talked about death, if he does, life will ensue. There would be life. Hebrews 11.6, but without faith is it impossible to please him? For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and, guess what? That he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So if Adam diligently seeks God, he will be rewarded as a result. True faith is rooted in the word and the promise. Adam would believe God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. God told Adam what the deal was. If Adam upholds it, he'll be rewarded. If no promise had been made, Adam would have lived without hope, any kind of hope. And hope, or a lack of hope, is characteristic of the fall. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 2.12, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So when you don't have hope, that's a characteristic of the fall. That's why God says to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you follow my commandments, you'll be rewarded. It wasn't, it wasn't just after the fall that this was the case. It was with Adam as well. If Adam would uphold God's law, Adam would be accepted. And something good would have come from it. And the very threatening of justice infers the promise. Adam would have a continuation of the joy that was set before him, and all those who would come after him would enjoy it as well, or would have enjoyed it. God promised Adam eternal life, the most perfect demonstration of himself to his creatures, and that forever. Adam would have had it forever, would have been in the presence of God forever. The tree, though, the tree was staring him in the face, the symbolic law, the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. The law was there to test and try Adam's obedience. Would he swerve? Would he uphold it? Hezekiah, in Second Chronicles 32-31, it says, God withdrew from him in order to test him that he might know all that was in his heart. But Adam respect to man, this probation with a reward of eternal life and the punishment of eternal death was set right before him in the tree. There he was to look every day. It's interesting that God doesn't say that you couldn't chop it down, couldn't build a house out of it, you couldn't examine it, look at the fruit, do scientific study on it. He just told him not to eat it. And Adam, in that probationary period sustained a relationship with God on our behalf in two ways. He sustained a relationship as a man, he himself, and as the root or representative of mankind. So not only is this situation somewhat interesting in having life and death set before him, and the all of this resting on the majesty, holiness, and justice of God, imitating God's character. But now, we see that Adam is there, representing himself, but also, as a consequence, representing all of those who would come after him. 
the whole of history proves that he was the first man to whom was spoken the creation ordinances and mandates, what the Genesis narrative demonstrates. But all of what Adam would accomplish or not accomplish would be passed on to his children. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to who? All men. Adam, his sin spread to all men. Adam was in the garden as a representative not only for himself, not only over his own image in which he was reflecting God's image, what will he do with it, but also for us. He was in contract with God on our behalf. And that's why Romans places in contrast to Adam Christ as the second Adam, the second man, who would come and fulfill everything that Adam didn't as a result of the fall. And it's a terrible thing once you begin to think about it. Adam was in the garden. There the law was given to him. And he had to have a perfect, perfect upholding of the law. Perfect keeping of it. That's what was required. He could not waver on it at all. In three respects, it had to be perfect. In respect to the subject and the object, the whole man, the whole body, the whole soul had to keep the law. The mouth, the arms, the soul, every and all parts of Adam had to uphold perfectly, otherwise he would have transgressed. And once on that path, he would sin, which he did. The second way was of degree. It wasn't just that he sort of had to kind of keep the law. It was that he had to do it perfectly. He had to keep it with all diligence and with all his heart. Just as we read, you shall love the Lord God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. Adam had to do that. If he didn't do that, he would transgress. Deuteronomy quotes it. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and these words which I commend you today shall be in your heart. That's what Adam was to do. And then thirdly, of perseverance. Not only just once, but for the whole time. He had to keep the law without fault. Cursed is the one who does not conform, confirm all the words of this law, and the people shall shall. shall, shall shall say, Amen. So, Deuteronomy tells us that one is cursed who does not uphold and confirm all of the words of the law. That's what Adam was to do. Now, it would have been really nice if Adam had kept it perfectly. Because do you know why the law is there? Or let me ask this question. Do you know why the character of God exists? In terms of our relationship, the character of God is a wonderful thing. God is a wonderful thing. God in and of himself and his attributes are perfect and wonderful and excellent. The promise, the commandment given to Adam was supposed to bring life. The law is not bad. The law is not evil. The law itself was to ordain to eternal life. Is the law then against the promises of God? What is Paul saying in Galatians 3? Certainly not. It's most agreeable to have 
promises in a covenant talking about life. If there was no reward, what kind of covenant would it have been? God would have acted unjustly against his character of not rewarding Adam for something good that he did. Jesus ultimately, though, came to do what Adam failed to do. The law that, was should, that should have ordained to eternal life brought death. Why? Because Adam transgressed. So Jesus came and he upheld as the second Adam the promise of the life that Adam should have gained. Jesus came to do what the law could not do because man sinned. For what law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did. How? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, and he condemned sin in the flesh. Had it not been for sin, that law would have brought men to eternal life. That's why Paul says in Romans 7.10, And the commandment, which was to bring life, brought death. Why? Why did he find that it brought death? Well, because he's a sinful man. Sinful men cannot use the law well. They need Christ to do it for them. And so Christ comes, God's Son, to procure eternal life, to bring forth eternal life, promised to man from the beginning. And if Adam would have persevered, he would have received what we receive by faith in Christ. Adam would have received it by his works, which is the very reason why we call it the covenant of works. Christ, the second Adam, earned everything that the first Adam didn't. He did what Adam didn't do. He did what Adam should have done. But Adam broke the covenant. Hosea 6-7, But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. They dealt faithlessly with me. Adam transgressed the covenant that God had made with him in the garden. And as a result... Sin came into the world, and as a result, death and all of its misery came into the world, and death spread to all men, because in Adam, all sinned. Adam was the root, even of Eve herself, for she came from his rib. He was the head. So, the character and relation of God to his creatures after the fall after transgressing and eating of the forbidden fruit, was different. Even in the creation of this covenant with Adam, it was set on the grounds of works. God manifests himself as the supreme lawgiver to Adam, to humankind in that way, and the chief good, desiring, wasn't that he desired, so to speak, wickedness in Adam, he desired Adam's chief good and to make man a partaker of his eternal happiness. In the covenant of works, though, there's no mediator. Adam's on his own. But for us, there is. And it is a matter of who fulfills or does not fulfill the obligations and stipulations of the covenant that will gain them the blessing or the curse. Even now, men are under one of two things. They are either under the covenant of works, under the condemnation of Adam and all of the death and misery that befalls that, or they are under the covenant made with his son, Jesus Christ. In thinking about all of that, how then might we apply a couple of lessons to be learned 
from this symbolic law placed in the garden. How might it be to us? Well, God is Lord of all things, of everything. Man can't even desire to eat fruit without God giving him the okay to do so, without asking God for permission. In all things for us, in everything that we do, regardless of what it is, we are to glorify God in everything. We are to depend on him for everything. Adam didn't do that. Ultimately, we'll find that out next week as we go through chapter 3 and how exactly that happened. But in all things, God has to be consulted by us as to what we should do. And God will speak to us in his word, in providences, through other people, through preaching, through all sorts of different mediums that he's given us. Demonstration of his providence over our life. But he is Lord of all things. And our happiness, if it's going to be true happiness, has to be placed in God alone. He alone is the source of all joy. It was a twisted problem that Adam dealt with in the fall. By twisting that idea that God alone is the source of joy and wanting to be like him quicker or in a manner of his own making than in the manner of God's making. Is it right to be like God or desire to be like God? Absolutely. But that was the twist as part of the fall. To desire it in a wrong way is sin. Man's true happiness is placed in God alone. And he should be, in every area of our life, the truest source of joy. Not ourselves, not things we think are good, but the things that he has told us that are good. And we should be satisfied with what God has given us. There should be more joy in the word of God, for example, than there is in all the world's pleasures for us. And how well do we set our hearts on that. We should be satisfied in him where our true happiness should be and what he gives us to desire the greater good or reward that he will bestow on us for our obedience before him in Christ. Knowing that all of our works are done by the power of the Spirit. Adam knew that if this time of trial was over that there should be something better. Some reward given to him as part of the obedience offered the making God the center of his joy. For us, as we think about eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and all of the sins that we commit as a result, we should be thinking in a different manner altogether that God is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him and obey him. We will be rewarded. True happiness. If, you, if you're looking for true happiness and what makes men happy, it's only obtained by being obedient to the law. That's what makes us happy. Because we reflect God. They always think of the law as bad. People think the law is something that's evil and rotten and we're not under law anymore, we're under grace. But we're missing the whole idea. Jesus has come fulfilling the law for us so that he could graciously place a covering upon us that we might have the ability to go back and keep the law. That's the Christian life. That's the sanctifying power of God in our life with his help. True happiness is obtained by obedience. 1 Timothy 1.5 Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. 
that the commitment does for us. It's a memorial then, just like the tree was for Adam, of our duty before God. Adam should desire the chief good. That's God. Man should not go after that which is simply pleasing to the body or to the eye. Rather, be obedient to what God has said. And we would be fulfilled and filled up. That is what the psalmist says is marrow and fatness. God is the supreme authority before man, which Adam should have followed as signified in the tree, but he didn't. There's no attaining of happiness in any other way. People are empty, and they go out and they try to find happiness and fulfillment in all of those other things in the world, and all of the empty partying and sex and drugs and all of those things that they try to fill themselves up with. But God is the only one that can fill that void. He was created in a particular manner to have a relationship in that manner. Even man and his innocent should respect God with a measure of awe and majesty, lest he should fall into sin, and we as well. Even now. Let us think about the sins that we commit when we, day in and day out, are attempting to follow God. We cannot do it in our own strength. We must do it in the strength of the Spirit, the power of God. We have to walk in the Spirit, as Paul says, placing ourselves under the preserving nature of the Spirit and the Word. And in doing that, we will find what true happiness is all about. Adam was in the garden to experience God and to commune with God and to have a happy life with God. But in each time, obedience is set aside and transgression is picked up, that happiness is shattered. Death results and misery results. And we who have been released from the bondage of sin through the blood of Christ and the power of Christ, how would it be that we would want to pick up those chains and place them on our wrists and ankles and bind ourselves again with the sins of the world? We've been released from that. We've been unshackled from those things. Let it be that our happiness would be found in obedience before God, that we might be able to fulfill what God says. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? We want to call him Lord, so that, as the scriptures say, God is not ashamed to be called our God. Adam ran and was ashamed because he had sinned. Let it not be so for us. Let us look for a life of happiness and power and perfect obedience with all of our might, that we might love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength, and all of our mind. Let's pray. Mighty Lord, you have set Adam in the garden. You had given him a commandment. You had told him what is right, what is proper. Your holiness, your majesty, your justice was set before his face and looking at the symbolism of the tree in which, O oh Lord, he ate. And we were all plunged into death and misery as a result. We ask for the power of the Spirit, O oh God, that you would aid us, strengthen us, help us, that we might not continually repeat those besetting sins, that we might not continually repeat the sins which crouch at the door, ready to spring upon us. If we would do well, would we not be rewarded
O Lord, we thank you for Christ who has kept the law perfectly. We thank you for his covering that has been placed over us. We thank you for his power through the Spirit that enables us to walk in the Spirit. We pray that during this week we would think about what we were redeemed from, the miseries of the covenant of works which Adam transgressed, and that we would, O God, be renewed unto life in the second Adam who came and fulfilled all things perfectly and gave us what the first one should have. We thank you that God was incarnate in the flesh and walked among us. We ask, O Lord, that in all of this and looking for a true life of happiness that we would behold his glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.